Chapter 6 of Tales of Mean Streets. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Orty. Tales of Mean Streets by Arthur Morrison. Chapter 6 Without Visible Means. All East London idled, or walked in a procession or waylaid and bashed, or cried in an empty kitchen. For it was the autumn of the great strikes. One army of men, having been prepared, was ordered to strike, and struck. Other, smaller armies of men, with no preparation, were ordered to strike to express sympathy, and struck. Other armies still were ordered to strike because it was the fashion, and struck. Then many hands were discharged, because the strikes in other trades left them no work. Many others came from other parts in regiments to work, but remained to loaf in gangs, taught by the example of earlier regiments which, the situation being explained, an expression devised to include mobbings and kickings and flingings into docks, had returned whence they came, so that East London was very noisy and largely hungry and the rest of the world looked on with intense interest, making earnest suggestions and comprehending nothing. Lots of strikers, having no strike pay and finding little nourishment in processions, started off to walk to Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool or Newcastle, where work might be got. Along the Great North Road, such men might be seen in silent companies of a dozen or twenty, now and again singly or in couples. At the tail of one such gang, which gathered in the Burdett Road and found its way into the Enfield Road by way of Victoria Park, Clapton and Stamford Hill, walked a little group of three, a voluble young man of thirty, a stolid workman, rather older, and a pale, anxious little fellow with a nasty, spasmic cough and a canvas bag of tools. The little crowd straggled over the footpath and the road, few of its members speaking most of them keeping to their places and themselves. As yet, there was nothing of the tramp in the aspect of these mechanics. With their washed faces and well-mended clothes, they might have been taken for a jury coming from a local inquest. As the streets got broken and detached, with patches of field between, they began to look about them. One young fellow in front, with no family to think of, who looked upon the enterprise as an amusing sort of tour, and had even brought an accordion, began to rebel against the general depression and attempted a joke about going to the Alexandra Palace. But in the rear, the little man with the canvas bag, putting his hand abstractedly into his pocket, suddenly stared and stopped. He drew out the hand and saw in it three shillings. "'Swell me!' he said. "'The missus is done there.' Shoved it in, unbeknown when I come away. She's only got a bob for herself and the kids. He broke into a sweat of uneasiness. I'll have to send it back at the next post office. That's all. Send it back, <laughs> not you. Thus, with deep scorn, the voluble young man at his side. She'll be all right. You lay your life. A woman always knows how to look after herself. Your bleeding soon won it, and bad. You do as I tell you, Joey. Stick to it. That's right, Dave, ain't it? Matter of fancy, 
replied the stolid man. My missus cleared my pockets out before I got away. Shouldn't wonder at being sent after for leaving her chargeable if I don't soon send some more. Women's different. The march continued and grew dustier. The cheerful pilgrim in front produced his accordion. At Palmer's Green, four went straight ahead to try for work at the Enfield Arms Factory. The others, knowing the thing hopeless, turned off to the left for Potter's Bar. After a long silence, "'Where'd you be nearest, Dave?' asked little Joey Clayton. "'No castle or Middlesbrough?' "'Middlesbrough,' said Dave. "'I done it afore.' "'Tramping ain't so rough on a man, is he, after all?' asked Joey wistfully. "'You done all right, didn't you?' "'Got through. All depends, though it's rough enough. Matter of luck. I had the bad weather.' If I don't get a good easy job where we're going, remarked the voluble young man, I'll have a strike there too. Have a strike there? exclaimed Joey. How? Who'd call them out? Why, I would. I think I'm equal to doing it, ain't I? And when working men stand idle and hungry in the midst of the wealth and the luxury and the extravagance they've produced with the sweat of their brow, why then, fellow workmen, it's time to act. It's time to bring the nigger-driving bloated capitalists to their knees. Hear, hear, applauded Joey Clayton. Tamely, perhaps, for the words were not new. Good on you, Newman. Newman had a habit of practising this sort of thing in snatches whenever he saw the chance. He had learnt the trick in a debating society, and Joey Clayton was always an applausive audience. There was a pause. The accordion started another tune and Newman tried a different passage of his harangue. In a shop, they call me Skulking, Newman. Why? Because I skulk, of course. Here, here, dreamily from Dave this time. I ain't ashamed of it, my friends. I'm a mica, out and out, and I hope I shall always remain a mica. The less a worker does, the more has to be employed, don't they? And the more the toilers rings out the capitalists, don't they? Very well, then. I'm Mike, and I do it as a sacred duty. You'll have all the miking you want for a week or two, said Dave Birch placidly. Stow it. At Potter's Bar, the party halted and sat under a hedge to eat hunks of bread and cheese, or hunks of bread and nothing else, and to drink cold tea out of cans. Skulky Newman, who had brought nothing, stood in with his two friends, as they started anew and turned into the Great North Road, he said, stretching himself and looking slyly at Joey Clayton, If I'd a bob or two, I'd stand you two blokes a pint apiece. Joey looked troubled. Well, as I ain't, I suppose I ought to, he said uneasily, turning toward the little inn hard by. Dave, he cried to Birch, who was walking on, well, won't you have a drink? And, well, if you are going to do the tough, I ain't proud, was the slow reply. Afterward, Joey was inclined to stop at the post office to send away at least two shillings, but Newman wouldn't. He enlarged on the improvidence of putting out of reach that which might be required on an emergency. He repeated his axiom as to a woman's knack of keeping alive in spite of all things, and Joey determined not to send, 
for a day or so, at any rate. The road got looser and dustier. The symptoms of the tramp came out stronger and stronger on the gang. The accordion struck up from time to time, but ceased towards the end of the afternoon. The player wearied, and some of the older men, soon tired of walking, were worried by the noise. Joey Clayton, whose cough was aggravated by the dust, was especially tortured after every fit to hear the thing drawling and whooping the tune it had drawled and whooped a dozen times before. But he said nothing, scarce knowing what annoyed him. At Hatfield Station, two of the foremost picked up a few coppers by helping with a heavy trapload of luggage. Up Digswell Hill, the party tailed out lengthily, and Newman, who had been letting off a set speech, was fain to save his wind. The night came, clear to see and sweet to smell. Between Wellin and Codicot, the company broke up to roost in such barns as they might possess, all but the master of the accordion, who had stayed at a little public house at Wellin, with the notion of earning a pot of beer and a stable corner, or better, by a tune in the taproom. Dave Burge lighted on a lone shed of thatched hurdles with loose hay in it, and Newman straightway curled in the snuggest corner on most of the hay. Dave Burge pulled some from under him, and having helped Joey Clayton to build a nest in the best place left, was soon snoring. But Joey lay awake all night, and sat up, and coughed, and turned restlessly, being unused to the circumstances, and apprehensive of those months in jail which, it is well known, are rancorously dealt forth among all them that sleep in barns. Luck provided a breakfast next morning at Codicot, for three bicyclists, going north, stood cold beef and bread round at the anchor. The man with the accordion caught up. He had made his lodging and breakfast and eight pence. This had determined him to stay at Hitchin and work it for at least a day, and then to diverge into the towns and let the rest go their way. So beyond Hitchin there was no music. Joey Clayton soon fell slow. Newman had his idea. And the three were left behind, and Joey staggered after his mates with difficulty. He lacked sleep, and he lacked stamina. Dave Burge took the canvas bag, and there were many rests. When Newman, expressing a resolve to stick by his fellow man through thick and thin, hinted at drinks. Dave Burge made tuppence at Henlow Level Crossing by holding an unsteady horse while a train passed. Joey saw little of the rest of the day. The road was yellow and dazzling, his cough tore him, and things were red sometimes and sometimes blue. He walked without knowing it, now helped, now lurching on alone. The others of the party were far ahead and forgotten. There was talk of a windmill ahead, where there would be rest, and the three men camped in an old boathouse by the river just outside Biggleswade. Joey, sleeping as he tottered, fell in a heap and lay without moving from sunset to broad morning. When he woke, Dave Burge was sitting at the door, but Newman was gone. Also, there was no sign of the canvas bag. No use looking, said Dave. He's done it. Hey? Skarky's up the twig and sneaked your tools. God knows where he is by now. No, the little man gasped, sitting up in a pale sweat. Not sneaked him, is he? 
Swelp leaders a set of calipers with fifteen bob in that bag. He ain't gone. Dave Burge nodded inexorably. Best fill in your pockets, he said. Perhaps he's been there. He had. The little man broke down. <laughs> I was going to send home that too, Bob. Swelp me I was. What can I do without my tools? If I got no job, I could have pawned them. And then I'd have sent home the money. Swell me, I would. Oh, it's cruel. The walking, with the long sleep after it, had left him sore and stiff, and Dave had to work to put him on the road again. He had forgotten yesterday afternoon, and asked at first for the others. They tramped in silence for a few miles, when Joey suddenly flung himself upon a tussock by the wayside. Why won't nobody let me live? he snivelled. I'm a harmless bloke enough. I worked at Riddison's man and boy very nigh twenty year. When they come and ordered us out, I come out with the others. Peaceful enough. I didn't want to chuck it up, God knows. But I come out prompt when they told me. And when I found another job on the island, four big blokes set about me and half killed me. I didn't know the place was blocked. And when two of the blokes was took up, they said I'd get strike pay again if I didn't identify them. So I didn't. But they never give me no strike pay. They laughed and chucked me out. And now I'm starving on the high road and skulking. Blimey, he's done me too. There were days wherein Joey learned to eat a swede pulled from behind a wagon and to feel thankful for an early turnip. Might have learned, too, just what tramping means in many ways to a man unskilled both in begging and in theft, but was never equal to it. He coughed, and worse, holding to posts and gates, and often spitting blood. He had little to say, but trudged mechanically, taking note of nothing. Once, as though aroused from a reverie, he asked, "'Wasn't there some others?' Others, said Dave, for a moment taken aback. Oh, yes, there were some others. They've gone on ahead, you know. Joey tramped for half a mile in silence. Then he said, Expect they're having a rough time too. Oh, very like, said Dave. For a space, Joey was silent, save for the cough. Then he went on. Comes are not bringing cordials with them. Everyone ought to take a cordial what goes tramping. I knew a man once that went tramping and he took a cordial. He done all right. It ain't so rough for them as plays on the cordial. And Dave Burge rubbed his cap about his head and stared, but answered nothing. It was a bad day. Crusts were begged at cottages. Every rise and every turn, the eternal yellow road lay stretch on stretch before them, flouting their unrest. Joey, now unimpressionable, endured more placidly than even Dave Birch. Late in the afternoon, No, he said, it ain't so rough for them that plays the accordion. They has the best of it. Swelp me, he added suddenly. We're all accordions, <laughs> he sniggered thoughtfully. 
and then burst into a cough that left him panting. <laughs> We're nothing but a blooming lot of accordions ourselves, he went on, having got his breath. And they play any tune they like on us. And that's how they make their living. Swell me, Dave, we're all accordions. <laughs> and he laughed. Um, yes, the other man grunted. And he looked curiously at his mate, for he had never heard that sort of laugh before. But Joey fondled the conceit and returned to it from time to time, now aloud, now to himself. All accordions, playing any tune as he's ordered. Blimey. Oh, we accordions. I don't believe we're as much as that. No, swelp me, we're only the footling little keys. Shoved about to suit the tune. Little tin keys. Blimey, footling little keys. I've been played on plenty, I have. Dave Burge listened with alarm and tried to talk of other things, but Joey rarely heard him. I've been played on plenty, I have, he persisted. I was played on once by a pal, and my spring broke. At nightfall there was more bad luck. They were driven from a likely barn by a leather-gaitered man with a dog, and for some distance no dormitory could be found. Then it was a cut haystack, with a nest near the top and steps to reach it. In the night, Burge was wakened by a clammy hand upon his face. There was a thick mist. It's you, Dave, ain't it? Clayton was saying. Good God, I thought I'd lost you. Well, what's all this here? Not the water, is it? Not the dock? I'm sopping wet. Burge himself was wet to the skin. He made Joey lie down and told him to sleep. But a coughing fit prevented that. It was them accordions who woke me, he explained when it was over. So the night put on the shuddering grey of the foredawn, and the two tramps left their perch and betook them, shivering and stamping to the road. That morning, Joey had short fits of dizziness and faintness. It's my spring broke, he would say after such an attack. Blooming little tin key put our tune. And once he added, Oh, I'm up to one tune, though, now. This is a blooming dead march. Just at the outskirts of a town where he stopped to cough over a gate, a stout old lady walking out with a shaggy little dog gave him a shilling. Dave Burge picked it up as it dropped from his incapable hand and... Joey, here's a bob, he said. A lady give it you. You come and get a drop of beer. They carried a tuppenny loaf into the taproom of a small tavern, and Dave had mild ale himself, but saw that Joey was served with stout with a penneth of gin in it. Soon the gin and stout reached Joey's head and drew it to the table, and he slept, leaving the rest of the shilling where it lay. Dave arose and stuffed the last of the tuppenny loaf into his pocket. He took a piece of chalk from the bagatelle board in the corner and wrote this on the table. Dear sir, for God's sake, take him to the workhouse. Then he gathered up the coppers where they lay and stepped quietly into the street. 
End of chapter 6